Good afternoon and welcome back to another episode of Back to Subscribers. I'm your host, John Dawson, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Matthew. Now, we were supposed to have another guest this week, but um, due to unforeseen circumstances, that guest won't be able to make it this week. However, that does not mean he will not be joining us at a later date. Uh, this guest in particular is very high profile and it's it was always going to be a little bit of a challenge to get him on. Um, but the fact that we're going to get him on at all is still good, even though it's not going to be this week. Nonetheless, we're here and we're going to do a call-in episode instead. So I'd like to hear what all you guys have to say, whether you've been enjoying the content, hating the content, uh, you've got criticisms, compliments, uh, or you just want to speak your mind. Uh, I'd love to hear it all in the call-in segment at the end of the episode. And um, apart from that, how are you going, Matthew? You well? I'm well. You know, I've been keeping busy, uh, as always. Busy uh, playing phone pretty... games. Yep, sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I only do that on the train, all right? Fair enough. Um, we've got a couple of articles to talk about. We won't delay too long. We'll uh, jump into it. I sent them to you. Could you read um, the first one? I think we'll start with the one from The Guardian. I think that sets the scene. Yeah. Um, in particular, this episode, we wanted to focus on uh, it's sort of a water-based episode. We're talking about our Navy and our uh, border security, particularly with these asylum arrivals and um, recent announcements that our Navy is going to be bolstering the fleet. Um, these are important changes, and it could be signaling that there's uh, larger plans coming in the future in terms of uh, our defense capability uh, possible conflicts we might be involved in, although that still seems unlikely at this stage. And the bigger question, which is, is Australia actually able to defend itself and contribute meaningfully within a conflict, for example, that might break out with uh, China or within the Middle East? Um, but without further ado, Matt, can you read that article by The Guardian? Certainly. Um, it's uh, titled, Asylum Seekers Taken to Nauru Amid Renewed Political Stoush Over Border Arrivals, written by Paul Carp, the Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian. More than 40 asylum seekers have been taken to Nauru after they found after they were found in a remote part of Western Australia. Guardian Australia has confirmed a second group of 13 asylum seekers was found at an Indigenous campsite at Panda Bay about an hour after a group of 30 men were found at Beagle Bay on Friday. Authorities believe both groups arrived on the same boat, although Pender Bay is about 25 kilometres north of where the first group was found. According to the Australian and the Sun-Herald, the group includes 12 Bangladeshis and one Indian man. On Sunday, the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese told reporters in Nowra that Operation Sovereign Borders was being implemented. The asylum seekers have been taken to offshore detention on Nauru for processing. Albanese noted the commander of Operation Sovereign Borders had warned against politicising national security. Quote from Albanese, Peter Dunn is someone who is showing, with his overblown rhetoric and with his overreach on this issue, showing that he's not interested in the outcomes or in the Australian national interest. The Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, said, the government's commitment to Operation Sovereign Borders is absolute. Quote, every person who has attempted to reach Australia by boat since I've been minister is back in their home country or in Nauru having wasted thousands of dollars and having risked their lives. Comments such as those made by the opposition leader this weekend run directly counter to Australia's na national security. This conduct undermines Operation Sovereign Borders and gives people smugglers the disinformation they need to get people on the boats. The Australian Border Force said on Friday that it was undertaking an operation in the northwest of Western Australia, but would not provide any more information while the operation was continuing. Rear Admiral Brett Sonter, the commander of Operation Sovereign Borders, said, The mission remains the same as it was when it was established in 2013. Protect Australia's borders, combat people smuggling in our region, and importantly, prevent people from risking their lives at sea. Any alternative narrative will be exploited by criminal people smugglers to deceive potential irregular immigrants and convince them to risk their lives and travel to Australia by boat, he said. Labor has maintained the core planks of Operation Sovereign Borders, including offshore detention and turning boats back where safe to do so. Despite Albanese warning Dunn to heed the very strong and unequivocal message sent by Sonta on Saturday, the opposition leader continued to attack the government's handling of asylum seekers. He claimed there was no question it did not so support Operation Sovereign Borders. From Dunn, I know exactly 
how these people smugglers work. They will react to a weak prime minister and to a weak minister. If they see vulnerabilities, they will exploit them. And that's what, and that's exactly what has happened here. The shadow defense minister, Andrew Hastie, said there had now been 303 people and 12 separate boats have arrived since Labor's election in May 2022. In October, Guardian Australia revealed a group of 11 asylum seekers had been sent to Nauru after reaching Australia, just months after the last people were removed from immigration detention on the Pacific nation. It was the first transfer to Nauru in nine years. In November, a group of 12 people who arrived on the West Australian coast were taken into Australian Border Force custody. And that's uh, that's the extent of the article. Yeah, so um, as we can all hear, it sounds like our border is pretty porous, um, which, you know, considering that we're, sound, that we're surrounded by a moat of sea on all sides, where there's really no excuse for the government to be allowing this to happen, except, um, I suppose, some sort of, uh, I guess it would be mismanagement, because this is a really bad angle, even for the Albanese government. You might look at West left-wing governments around the rest of the West, and we can see that they're extremely lenient to illegal immigrants and uh, they try to make them into a new voting block in some countries. Um, that's really not a dynamic here. Um, even our Labor government likes to give the presentation that they're strong on borders. And um, I suppose this is because they are still trying to appeal to a working class constituency, which is concerned about these issues of defence and um, of having our country invaded by small boats, you know, of 40 uh, Indian men. Sound, was that the correct number? Um, I'd, I'd like to also highlight uh, that the opposition, that the, both uh, Peter Dutton and Albanese uh, are really, that although they might be focusing on this issue, it really um, it exposes a hypocrisy, we can say, in that they're concerned about a handful of uh, guys on a boat they're not concerned about the hundreds of thousands that are legally coming into the country every year. If we're concerned that these handful of guys will be a national security threat, um, perhaps because of the ideas they hold, whether they've, uh, they believe in some radical doctrine. Um, I know that was a big thing with a lot of the Islamic immigrants in uh, Europe. They've, a lot of them uh, have arrived as refugees and then after that uh, conducted terrorist activities and uh, beheadings and these things, targeting Christians within Europe. Um, if we're concerned about that over here with our uh, illegal immigrants, then this is an equally potent threat with the legal immigrants that uh, arrive in Australia and are sworn in by our local MPs at uh, conferences every year on Australia Day. Um, further, if it's a concern about some sort of smuggling and all these things, I mean, turn on, uh, is it border security? I think the TV show is. You can see every single day there's like a at least uh, one Chinese guy trying to smuggle in a suitcase full of cigarettes and uh, who knows what else within the jade statues and all these things. So once again, this is a, a concern that we have with legal immigrants as well. So, um, you know, obviously you need to vet uh, all the immigrants and that does prevent some degree of criminality arriving in the country, although it's not foolproof. We can look at uh, with the, the SCAF uh, attacks, uh, the rapes, and um, the Ashfield rapes and all these things which have um, unfolded over the last couple of decades as we've received increasing amounts of legal immigrants into Australia and refugees. Um, and we can see that really the fact that they're placing so much focus on these Ill illegal immigrants while they're both largely supportive of mass legal migration is really, uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's, a, it's sort of a superfluous difference in that way. And so... Um, in many ways, focusing on these boats is a distraction from the much greater problem, which is the, legal, the mass legal migration. Did you have anything to add, Matthew? Yeah, and I think um, this is very much a way for Albanese to kind of be, have this tough on migration, kind of this stance, uh, which he can run up to the, the election coming up, um, it'll be 2025, so it's a little bit away. But considering he's let in a net, additional about half a million people last year alone and there, and we're seeing the effects of this in the housing market at the grocery store uh, in your take-home wages your take-home income there's this we're feeling the tangible effects of mass migration so this is a, a chance for albanese to not actually change his government's policy but to appear like he's 
you know, he's for the working class. He's for the, you know, the mums and dads who are struggling with the cost of living crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And this has been a tactic that the Liberals have employed for who knows how long since John Howard, I think, might be the earliest example where they'll go really hard after asylum seekers and people, the boat people, and they'll talk about, uh, you know, we're going to turn back the boats and uh, they're not going to let anyone land on Australia. And I guess uh, it works because it's very, uh, you know, immediate imagery. It's very easy to say, look, they've arrived on this boat in our country. No one intercepted them. They, there's no checks, no anything. So this is a, an image that is very strong in the minds of many Australians. And so by them appearing to be counteracting that, then um, they're able to still have the appearance of being really tough on boats. And uh, even a lot of people accuse John Howard of being racist and all these things. Um, so they can appear to be really right wing. When in reality, Howard oversaw one of the largest leaps in um, mass multicultural immigration into Australia. Um, Scott Morrison did for most of his term as well, although he went hard on the boats. Tony Abbott wasn't much better. Um, and although they're, you know, they're, they're all, these guys all did some good things, um, some better than others, we can see that there's just been this unrelenting tide of uh, mass immigration into Australia, changing our demography, changing our way of life, suppressing wages, increasing house prices, um, you know, putting a heavier burden on the limited land and resources that we have, water, for example. And, um, you know, these things, um, these things aren't actually going to be combated by turning back the boats. Yeah. And it, 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 it takes, um, it's going to take a lot to, to change the minds of these politicians when they don't feel the real tangible effects that the regular Australian does, you know, Albanese with his five homes and his one unit in Canberra. He benefits personally from mass migration, you know, the inflation of the housing market increases his net worth. And then all his friends and his donors, uh, in the, in the property developers who he, he's very friendly with, it, it benefits all the wrong people. And then there's no real kind of method or, or way for people to oppose this. You know, there's a lot of young people out there with fears that, yeah, they'll never own a home. They'll never, you know, they're delaying children. They're delaying having a family, delaying getting married. And what's the what's going to be the long-term effect of this mass influx of immigrants? We're going to have, we already have a, a below replacement birth rate for a couple of decades. What's that going to be like for millennials and Gen Z and for Gen Alpha when they can't get a home? But they're stuck in a small unit with absorbent rents they can't save. They can't afford a wedding. They can't afford, uh, you know, children's clothes, cots, school fees, that kind of stuff. And then it's just going to be a vicious cycle of we don't have enough young people, so we need to import them. It's going to up the house. And uh, yeah. It's actually interesting. Dr. Frank Salter, within his book on genetic interests, actually talks about, he comes to, uh, he makes a mathematical sum in order to figure out how many immigrants it actually takes to suppress the native birth rate um, within certain areas. And so I can't remember the exact ratio, but it's, there's a direct relation between having more outsiders and less of your own native population having kids. So they always say that we need more um, immigrants because we've got an aging population that's on its way out and that um, we're not having enough kids. And so this is why it demands great immigration. But in reality, the greater immigration only further suppresses the birth rates. Um, it estranges people within their community, which weakens uh, community bonds, which would, uh, you know, furthers the burden financially and also emotionally on um, people who are having kids. And um, in this way, you know, it's a, it's a vicious cycle, like you said, and it just keeps spiraling downwards. Um, just before we move on to the next topic, it's also worth noting that the commander of this operation to end these refugee arrivals is actually saying that Peter Dunn's rhetoric is almost worse than the actual arrival itself and that him uh, going hard after, you know, the Australian government currently and talking about how weak they are in terms of security is, um, is as if that's actually worse than the lack of security itself, which is very uh, amusing. I think this speaks to a broader uh, issue, which is that a lot of our politics has been... Um, basically held in its place in its status quo that we've had for a long time by a consensus among the major parties to really sort of uh, play easy on these population topics 
which um, is beneficial to each of them because they both uh, represent uh, policies that are directly at odds with the opinions of the majority of Australians. For example, most Australians don't want further uh, rate, high rates of immigration. Uh, most of them were very much opposed to multiculturalism when it was first introduced. And so these are anti-democratic um, policies and ideas that are put forward. And so they've been sustained for a long time by you know, um, each party uh, making sure that the other party doesn't uh, go too hard in their rhetoric and doesn't uh, abuse the other too much because they couldn't stand up to this abuse. The Australians, the Australian population would simply uh, vote against them. The, the party that actually decided to become the party of anti-immigration and pro-Australia and, um, you know, probably even if they were, uh, went as far as repatriating uh, various parts of the population, um, I, I think a majority of Australians would actually support these policies. But, um, of course, they kept completely gatekept out of the conversation by the major parties and all the major institutions, which will say that's extreme, that leads to violence, that's all these things. When in reality, it's a very normal policy. Um, a lot of these can be implemented extremely peacefully. They have been throughout history. And, um, and so, you know, it, in order to see change on this, we have to start um, allowing this rhetoric uh, to be spoken freely and embraced by the population. Um, so I encourage Peter Dutton in that, um, although I don't think he's a truly on-site representative of the Australian people's interests, um, it is good to see that he's bringing this more aggressive rhetoric in, which is only going to um, align the Australian population's uh, perspective more with our own, which will deliver actual solutions. For example, shutting down immigration, uh, strengthening our border security, etc. Um, I think that's enough for that topic. Do we, you want to move on to the next article, Matthew? Yeah, I'll just say briefly, you talk about Dunn there, and you could see with Trump in America just how quickly uh, the, the public sentiment can change if there is a political leader willing to take this risk, willing to back the the, the public, uh, the majority of the public in their, their support against immigration. Get That leader would be beloved in Australia. And maybe Peter Dunn can do it, maybe someone else. But yes, um, going on to our next article, it's about the Australian Navy. It's from forces.net, titled Australian Navy to Double Surface Fleet, Becoming Largest in Its History Since World War II. The Federal Government of Australia is planning to significantly bolster the lethal capabilities of the Royal Australian Navy, more than doubling the size of the surface combat fleet, combatant fleet. Following the recommendations of a defence strategic review, the Albanese government says it will double the number of warships and build six new large optional crewed surface vessels that can be operated remotely by a support vessel during wartime. Australia's future fleet will constitute the largest number of surface combatants since the Second World War. According to plans, the Royal Australian Navy will consist of 26 major surface fleet combatants. This will include uh, various different, you know, uh, ships. All the uh, Navy nerds can read the article if they want. The Defence Review also recommended having 25 minor war vessels to contribute to civil maritime security operations, which include six offshore patrol vessels. The government has accepted the recommendations. Uh, the total cost of the Australian plan over the next 10 years is estimated at $54.2 billion. This includes an additional $11.1 billion of funding for the future service fleet and an injection of $1.7 billion over the forward estimates. This comprises the Albanese government's investment of additional $30.5 billion to Defence Integrated Investment Program out to 2032-33. The government says that this investment will result in defence expenditure reaching Is it just me or did uh, Matthew cut out? Yeah, okay, it sounds like Matthew's cut out. Um, but I think we got the most of the article. We'll just wait for him to rejoin. Um, I'll, I'll give some commentary in the meantime. So the Navy is looking to drastically increase its fleet, is the long story short. Um, 11 billion will be added to its uh, budget over the next decade. 11.1 billion, sorry, and um, and an extra, I think, was it 10 or 12 new vessels 
Uh, regardless, this will be the, the greatest size of the Navy since World War II. And um, I think most obviously we can look at this from the perspective of uh, how everything is interpreted in geopolitics, which is a signal to our adversaries and also to our allies. Um, so obviously by increasing our capability, we're going to be able to provide better support to our allies, which uh, in turn will, I guess, strengthen our allegiance. Uh, Albanese has talked about how we're living through uh, one, of the, uh, one of the greater times of turbulence for geopolitics in a very long time. Um, I assume since the Cold War. And so um, the, this is likely necessary. Um, also, it signals to our enemies that, you know, we're, we're not to be messed with. Also, I think it does somewhat increase our independence, which I, I do back. I think Australia needs to become independent of America and also of the UK and of our allies, uh, which for a long time we have not been. I don't think maybe at any point in our history have we actually been able to independently depend our borders. And so we've always been very much uh, linked to all of our allies, um, which I think we can see, especially with America nowadays or with UK um, in the previous uh, century, has actually resulted in them exerting a lot of influence over our domestic politics. Um, I suppose, you know, with the maybe the biggest example would be um, suggested influence of American CIA and intelligence in the expulsion of Gough Whitlam. There is a little bit of evidence behind that if you accept that theory, but you can also look at various other things. We would never be able to rebel against America on the Israel issue. We would never be able to rebel against America on bringing Julian Assange back. And so um, by becoming more independent, we'll, I think we'll be able to self-actualize as a country to a greater degree. Um, I'll pass over to Matthew if he's back. Are you there? Yeah, I'm back. Sorry about that. All good. Um, do you want to take over um, for a moment? We'll go for another five minutes and then we'll open up the callers. Yeah, um, you're talking about the, the need to be uh, more independent as a nation. And, and this is true, especially considering the rising power of China and our position both ge geographically between America and China and hopefully uh, geopolitically in the future where we can act as a regional power that isn't beholden to either but has our own strength to stand up for ourselves and to advocate for our interests in the Asia Pacific and hopefully beyond. And I think uh, the Albanese government increasing the size of the Navy, whilst good for domestic industry, good for you know manufacturing, will also be good for our um, the, the power, the, the um, influence we can project on an international stage. And it's similar to the effect that uh, Germany or a country like that would have in Europe, where through their that their economic might and what would be our economic and naval might are able to project their their um, influence and their policies around their region, as you saw during the GFC, uh, particularly on countries like Italy and Greece, affecting their their um, fiscal and monetary policy after the debt crisis and um we could do much the same throughout png into indonesia vietnam yeah we can we can influence these countries and, and this could be a better fit you know we influence these countries we have stronger relationships stronger trade uh stronger demand for australian produced goods you know fruit uh, all agricultural goods manufactured goods minerals I see this as a as a positive development. Uh, one of the few things Albanese's done that I've particularly liked. Yeah, it'd be good to. I think we should have a as a far goal becoming our uh, the regional superpower, I suppose, within the Asia Pacific. Although that's a very long yeah. way off. Um, I know that the biggest problem with this navy increase is that they can't find any staff. Uh, no one wants to go work on a ship for four months at a time. And, uh, and not really no one wants to sign up for the military in general these days, I suppose, as uh, yeah. military, uh, th the threat of military violence uh, heightens, the threat that, th that personnel will actually have to fight in a, in a conflict um, increases with, you know, you have outbreaks within Ukraine, you have outbreaks within um, the Middle East with Israel-Palestine, you have outbreaks, uh, well, I suppose you've got heightening tensions with China um, and, and the Taiwan issue. And so with all these things, um, no one wants to join the military further. Uh, I, I guess you could compare this to in the past where when there were hiding tensions with, um, you know, within Europe, 
many Australians willingly signed up to fight for the mother country for Britain and for the empire and for Australia, of course. And uh, this is just not a sentiment that exists anymore. Australia as a country has come to represent, you know, multiculturalism, uh, freedom, supposedly, pride, secularism, and uh, all these things, which no one wants to fight for these uh, values. No one wants to lay down their life for liberalism. They want to lay down their life for their family, for their friends, for their country, and the country representing a concrete people group, um, you know, made up of people that are very closely related to them, of their own ethnic group. And, uh, you know, no one wants to lay down their life for these abstract principles. Um, no one's inspired by the vision of Australia that has been laid out for the last couple of decades. And really, the only there is no way the government can turn this around. This is a perennial problem. No one will lay down their life for these concepts because they are weak. Um, and so this is not something that's going to go away unless we see some sort of right-wing revanchist government come in and actually, uh, you know, completely change our country's ideology. This is uh, going to be an ongoing problem for us. It's an ongoing problem for America, of course, as well. And I think the UK, uh, they're all having recruitment issues. But that's pretty much brings us to the end of it. I see um, Percy Spenders in chat. I'm sure he's going to correct us on a lot of our geopolitics uh, knowledge and predictions because he's the expert. Um, but uh, would you be open to opening it up to call-ins now, Matthew? Yeah, I just want to touch briefly. What you're saying there reminded me of TikTok I saw during the week. And it's this guy, you know, I think he was in Melbourne or Sydney, and he's asking all these people, oh, it was on Australia Day, if they would fight for Australia. And it was all these progressives, and they were saying, no, you know, this country has to change. No, I don't believe, I don't love this country. I wouldn't fight for this country. And it's like the current system doesn't appeal to progressives, doesn't appeal to conservatives. So who, who, who wants to go? and fight for this country you know the progressives don't the conservatives don't frankly it's just blokes and i, I you know I, I know people in the armed services they're there for the money they're there for the benefits they're there for the house for the uni for the healthcare, that kind of stuff it's, it's and some of them are there for the adventure as well i'd say still yeah so and there's one who said he wanted to kill muslims so <laughs> bruh we got a uh, ben robert smith fan over here yeah <laughs> Yeah, we respect Ben Robert Smith on this channel. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to make that an official policy, but uh, anyway, I think we're on, going to be on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So you know, disavow. Oh, I think yeah. on that one. Whatever we, we disavow war up. crimes, but I don't yes. know if Ben Robert yes. Smith did commit war crimes. Can we be sure of that? Is the exactly? Yeah, is the lying government going to tell you the truth about Ben Robert Smith? Who knows? Anyway, you know. Um, Tall, That's neither here attractive nor there. Australian the man gets Victoria Cross defending his mates, and he just gets attacked. For it. <laughs> I know. Well, he didn't even do anything wrong. Of course, that's yeah. a joke. But uh, anyway, do you want to finish your point, and then we'll open up to callings? Uh, that's that's about it. I think we can open that's up it. to right. whoever wants to join. All right, fair enough. Um, all right, who wants to go first? Is there a way to raise your hand or indicate, or do we? I'll just let everyone in. There's not that many. Uh, allowed to speak, allowed to speak, allowed to speak. All right, and if any of you want to share this around, um, I guess I'll announce now that the call is open. Hello? Hello? How are you guys? Hey, Blake. Well, thank you. How was you, Ben? You can hear me. Yep. Long time yeah, no talk, just... Blake. How are you going? I just wanted to talk about the first kind of article about the government and the asylum seekers. And I think the reason why the the government is putting this facade on to send them back is because they, it's not that they don't want them here. They want them here legally because it's actually harder to send them back if they're here legally, because if they're here illegally, they're criminals. You can easily send them back. But I wouldn't be surprised if the government's giving them a pathway to come here legally anyway because then it's a lot harder to kind of um have a pretext to send them back do you get what i mean well yeah there's definitely this um sort of agenda where there is um you know they do want to reduce the population of australians with roots to this country you know anglo-celtic european australians and introduce this new population of you know multicultural mixed race um, of all these various different backgrounds with no connection to the country who are just here to work 
Um, and so uh, certainly introducing them legally is far more advantageous because they're, they're better economic units, I suppose. Yeah. And like I said, yeah, that's, it's a lot harder to send them back once they're here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's the case. I was actually, um, I might write up an article. I, I might just make a Twitter thread about it. But I was thinking about the degree to which is this malicious, this, um, this change, this policy of multiculturalism and open borders, basically legal open borders where we're admitting anyone that, uh, you know, <laughs> wants to come to the country with no qualifications, no qualms whatsoever. Um, is this a is this a malicious uh, policy that's being enacted, you know, for the for the broader aim of I don't know uh, just destroying the West, which uh, I know is that's what a lot of commentators say, or is this because people genuinely believe the doctrine of multiculturalism of liberalism, etc. And I think it's probably uh, a combination of the two. I think there are malicious actors. For example, we can look at Mark Liebler. Right, and he's uh, former head of various Zionist organisations within Australia, and he uh, has been a long, long time proponent of multiculturalism for Australia, but of strict uh, anti-diversity, you know, strict anti-foreigner policies for Israel, and um, so he even, uh, you know, he he uh, he advocated for the Voice, of course, most notably more recently, which would have seen Aboriginal Australians. Who are very aggressive against the traditional Australia, or you know the Anglo-Celtic European Australia um, of our grandfathers. He would have seen that put in, but of course, as soon as war broke out in Israel and Palestine, he wasn't advocating for a Palestinian voice to Israel. You know, he wasn't. Uh, he was. He wouldn't have suggested anything like that. And so he he went full uh, pro-Israel Zionist. You know, we need to absolutely level Gaza and all these things. That's not an exact quote, but. Um, you understand what I mean, that he he was a complete chauvinist for Israel, um, no concerns about minority representation of uh, colonisation or any of these things. And we can have a look at another example. For example, uh, Avir Drahimovic, who is the head of the, the Anti-Defamation Commission, which is our equivalent of America's ADL. And it's once again, it's formed from the same group, uh, this Jewish B'nai B'rith organization, which represents the interests of Jews around the world. And that's, once again, it, uh, it runs programs in over 100 schools within Victoria, in which it advocates for diversity and multiculturalism and all these things. And, uh, of course, of a false telling of Australian history. And uh, yet he is, once again, pro-Israel unequivocally uh, when it comes to the recent conflict and, you know, the issues of colonization and whatnot within Israel. So I'd say that these guys are likely, they know what they're doing. They're probably doing it with malicious intent. They want to see Australia, the traditional Australian weakened so that their uh, portion of the population, I suppose that would be the Jewish minority within Australia, can be raised up, um, could find more advantage. They're, you know, if the population's not homogenous, then they will be able to operate more freely. Um, but then I think there are a lot of people that genuinely do believe in liberalism and um, they're probably the rank-and-file members of both major parties. Um, I, I guess the ideology has been spread thoroughly throughout the population at this point that many uh, just don't question it. And so they, they'll go along willingly. They, they genuinely do believe that people that are pro-Australia are evil and that racism is evil and all these things. Did you guys have anything to add? No, I guess not. All right, um, Percy, Percy Spender, did you want to tell us how we're doing with uh, our foreign policy analysis? Yeah, what's going on, guys? Um, can you hear me all good? Is the microphone all right? Yeah, you're coming through good. <clears throat> yeah, no, I agree with like most of what you said. I thought it was good. It was really interesting, and I'm really glad you brought up how like we're well below recruitment levels, yet we're increasing the size of the Navy. I don't know where these uh, sailors are going to come from. And uh, I'm a bit worried that they'll... Um, I've seen in the EU, a few e EU countries have offered like citizenship in turn for service in the military. So hopefully it doesn't come to where we're offering like visas to be on a 
Navy vessel for a few months or fight for us. But yeah, I, I just don't know where these That'd be, um, uh, sailors are going to come from. That'd be like yeah. Roman Empire, late Roman Empire level, you know, bringing in the barbarians as mercenaries sort of a thing. <laughs> yeah, literally. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what's going to come of that. So, yeah, hopefully that doesn't happen. Is that likely? I don't. I don't know. Like, I think it'll come to a point where we just we literally just won't have enough people, so they'll get more and more desperate and offer these like incentives and. Like possibly, I've seen, I can't remember which EU countries have done it, but like, you know, across all the West, um, recruitment levels are well below their um, quotas and stuff. And I've seen a few articles saying how they're like thinking of offering like citizenship if they like have a military service. But um, yeah, I, I think it'll just depend how things go really with like war with China and stuff. Do you, Do you think, see that um, as likely? As, as I don't know, to be honest, do you think that's why we're getting this increased military um, boost and uh, or do you think it's more so to do with the recent Israel-Palestine or the Ukraine uh, developments? I think it's to um, to kind of um, signal, as you said, to the United States that, hey, we're going to like, we're, we're, we're not going to be like lazy allies and we're just kind of signaling also to China, like, um, you know, we're... We're um, willing to defend Taiwan, but um, honestly, I don't know. To be honest about Taiwan, I honestly think I'm I'm much more of the camp that nothing ever happens. And <laughs> Taiwan, I, I don't think China will invade. I don't know, but my in, I, don't I find know. it I'd hard say, to see as well. I don't see that happening in the short term, especially. Yeah, yeah I see. Yeah, like China. Did, Taiwan makes it. so much money from China. As I was saying, um, Taiwan just makes so much money from China, so. I don't know. I think Taiwan will just want to eventually reunify with the mainland and there won't be a war. But I don't know. Who, who knows? Yeah, on the topic of um, recruitment rates in, across the West, do you think a degree of automation with within the armed services? So you obviously got drones, but as the article alluded to, uh, ships that are driven by remotely through other warships, do you think that will kind of mitigate the effect of low recruitment rates? Hmm, that's interesting. I've never really thought of like um, automated like na in a naval sense, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not really much of a military guy, but um, yeah, that's interesting because the Ukraine war obviously has shown how big drones are and like um, how much they, of an impact they can make. But um, yeah, that's interesting. I don't really know about naval in a naval sense, like how much you can leave like naval warfare down to drones and automation. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. I know that uh, the, the I guess he would be the foreign correspondent for the Australian. He was saying that the solution <laughs> to this is simply to just raise the uh, pay of, of uh, navy personnel. Do you see this as the solution, or do you agree with what I said that uh, there has to be some sort of a um, you know, interest in fighting for Australia as a concrete uh, entity. And it's not just going to come from, you know, uh, you, no one's going to sacrifice their life for money, basically, because uh, what are you going to do? You can't spend it when you're dead. Um, there has to be some willingness to, some, some other principle or belief that's motivating it, surely. Yeah, I agree with you that um, you can increase the pay a little bit, but I don't think it'll make too much of a difference. You need to... You need people that are like willing to sacrifice for like a, a country they believe in, a nation that's like serving their interests at the very least. And we just don't have that as like, you know, young white men. Um, and that's the same for like Germany, same for America, all these countries having their recruitment problems is that they just don't believe in their, in their libtub government, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Like, uh, it won't make a big difference. And do you think that the whole Ben Robert Smith thing, um, showing that the military will turn on our own for, you know, um, whether he committed those acts or not, I, I'm really not sure. Um, I don't know, even if he did, um, like we see the brutal acts committed by foreign armies around the world without any repercussions for their soldiers. In fact, they are often rewarded. Do you see this as actually um, very negative that like it demonstrates that the military won't have the back of its soldiers at the end of the day? Yeah, 100%. That's so, like, demotivating. Like, you just get, like, um, the 
thrown under the bus for serving your country and, you know, what you think is doing the right thing, you know, defending, fighting for your country and, you know, sacrificing your life and you just, you know, end up being like backstabbed like, basically and like half the public hates you. Yeah, I, I thought that was very, uh, would have been very demotivating for potential soldiers. And you see, they they even do all this um, pride stuff now as well with Pride Month, um, the military that is. And I don't ex- know who they're expecting to recruit. I surely among the homosexual population, there's just a far lower willingness to fight for the country. You know what I mean? They generally have far more left wing politics. Um, they'd also that uh, they'd also, I suppose, be more attracted to, I suppose, feminine sort of. Uh, jobs and stuff like that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that uh, these things are really going to bring in new c- recruits. So why do they do it if they are so desperately seeking new people, do you hey, believe? John, are you really questioning why gays don't want to be on a boat with sweaty men for months at a time? I think, no, I I think gays in the true. Navy would be quite, quite a popular <laughs> thing. <laughs> I guess, but don't they have women now? Like, what do you need the men for? Isn't that what the female soldiers are for, anyway? But, but on the female um, Navy, I remember in my childhood, there was all these um, rape allegations in the Navy, and so they can't even recruit women now because there's this stigma of, oh, you're just going on a boat, you'll get raped. So they can't get my, gay, they um, can't get women, they can't get white men. A family member of mine was trying to convince me to join the Army, and, um, you know, obviously I'm not going to do it, but uh, <laughs> that, that's for the other people to do. Uh, because I don't want to be blown up for this government. But um, he was trying to tell me, you know, oh, there are girls in there now and, and all these things. Like, that's a selling point. <laughs> anyway, um, I suppose we could have just asked Matthew directly uh, for any questions relating to homosexuality. Um, I think he's the expert on that in that regard. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, yeah, because I'm the most attractive man, so I have women and you have lots of men it's true just so many men that's it's crazy yeah anyway i'd rather not talk about that that. no i've seen john he's a hideous man he's a hideous man (laughs) hitty his first date was to make a wish they thought he had um, (laughs) facial cancer (laughs) i'm yeah i'm freakish i'm an incel for life you know they, they could never find a woman that would agree to go out with me so i'm safe in that regard um, He's got this massive hunchback as well. <laughs> yeah, he has to get yeah, his shirt that's custom tailored. I was going to move to Notre Dame, but you know, no flights this time of year. Anyway, um, so have we got anything else we talk, want to talk about? What do you guys reckon about the National Observer? How do you feel that we've been doing recently? Is the content good? Um, any ideas for new types of things that we can try and do? We just put on a recent podcast. Maybe Alex wants to talk about this. Um, with hosted by himself, uh, Gabe, another New Zealander whose name I forget, I'm very sorry, to uh, Boogie, and also to, uh, uh, what's his name, James, I believe. Or maybe, do you not want to speak, Alex? No, uh, do you guys hear me? Yeah, loud and clear, we can, can hear you. I can hear you. That's where it is. Um, oh, yeah, I'll pick up from where you left off. So it's between uh, me and Mark. Uh, we both work with Zealandia First. We founded it. And we work with Gabe of Australia First and his co-host, James. So that's uh, we've been doing that weekly, kind of the same format as this, you know, go through articles, uh, what's happened during the past week, and then uh, jump into some call-ins, which have, uh, we've been doing that through Twitter. So it gets a bit heated, more heated than this. So we've yeah, been I've heard really... it's yeah, it's been a bit rowdy, hey. I've heard uh, a lot of uh, a lot of arguments get sorted out in those call-ins. Yeah, we thought we could uh, have the call-ins on the actual podcast recordings. Uh, that's not been the case the last two episodes. Uh, we've had I think five people doxed over two episodes. It's been great. Only, uh, only yeah, five. only five. <laughs> Um, but it's pretty good. I think people just uh, wait and uh, air everything out between each other. It turns into a uh, fight, and all the hosts just mute themselves for twenty five minutes. So that's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty funny stuff. Yeah. Uh, let, so let I recommend the everyone create the content for you. Yeah. Well, that's a, it. Gets the engagement. You know, if people know that uh, they can show up and have a food fight. Although I think people are understanding that we go for about 
30 to 45 minutes and then they show up uh, just on time to jump on the mic and miss all the good stuff. But it's been good. It's um, We've uh, been working well together. We should have an episode live recorded on Twitter on Monday uh, evening. should be good. Is that for Zelandia first or for Tasman Talks, which is the podcast well, that the National Observers Yeah, so we... We so we just we're just doing Tasman talks at the moment. Um, we will eventually just do a like a New Zealand centric podcast that might be more professionally recorded. I think um, you know on PCs with mics and probably not live. We'll have um, we just, uh, Yeah, that's uh, that's on the cards now that we've both uh, gone more public with what we've been doing lately. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we really congratulate you and tip our hat because you're putting it all on the line for your country, um, for New Zealand, you know, face doxing and, uh, you know, founding a real organization. You've got the Zealandia Heritage Foundation, as I understand it. Um, So, you know, there's a lot I think Australians can learn uh, in terms of courage from you two Australian nationalists, that is. Um, So, you know, real real, uh, hats off to you guys. Yeah, if I was going to show anything... Uh, tonight will be the Zealandia Heritage Foundation. So if you go on Twitter at Zealandia HF, one word. Um, so Zealandia First is the actual like political arm of it. That's uh, the guys that can put their faces out, me and Mark. Um, but the Heritage Foundation's got a lot of guys behind the scenes that you know, like you said, to put your face out there, put your name to a Twitter account. Uh, not everyone can do that, you know. People have got like jobs. Explained to, I, I could never do that. I'm freakishly deformed. I've got one eye and uh, two teeth. So, you know, uh, at least we, you guys. We would have, lose, all, yeah, we would lose all of our followers. It's true. Yeah. They, yeah. they thought they were just two handsome men, but it turns out it's one handsome. No, oh, sorry. <laughs> one gay man and one, uh, you know, hunchback. Uh, excuse, me. Dumb over here. <laughs> excuse me. I'm narcissistic. Hey. I'm only attracted to one man, and that's myself. Okay. <laughs> That's still kind of gay, not going to lie. So, I was gonna if say, you look uh, like me, if you look like me, you'd be gay for myself, all right? Whoa, that's a big call. Australians with uh, one eye and a few teeth, that's like, what, a six out of ten over in Australia? Uh, uh, yeah, I reckon. I reckon. You should see the women, though, crazy. They look like, uh, you know, they look like men as well. It's insane. Um, anyway, um, Alex, while you're still here, we'll try and keep on topic. Stop. Matthew yeah. derailing us. Um, do you see a lot of opportunity for reform in your country? Obviously, you've got um, the New Zealand First Party, which has risen to prominence recently um, in the recent election, and it seems to be quite competently run, even if it's not um, fully on side like some nationalist parties in Europe, for example. Um, it seems to be far leagues ahead of anything that we have over here, even better than One Nation. Um, do you see a lot of opportunity for you guys to affect serious change? Yeah, like I think we are quite lucky uh, with New Zealand First. Um, Winston Peters, who is the leader and our foreign minister and the deputy prime minister, um, probably one of the greatest politicians to ever live in New Zealand. And um, there's a few issues that we're actually going to be pressing him on in the next coming weeks, uh, especially over immigration. Um, I mean, they did come in halfway through the year, but... uh, we've got to kind of get this all changed uh, for the next calendar year. You know, uh, we took in a, a quarter of a million migrants in the past 12 months and we want to make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, but yeah, like I've, I kind of keep up with Australian politics. Um, we definitely seem to be lucky to have a coalition between, you know, like a center right party, the libertarians and you'd probably call it a nationalist party. Um, and they work pretty well together. The great thing was that uh, the leader of the New Zealand First Party pushed really hard to get everything he wanted uh, before he agreed to a coalition. Um, and that's the best we could have hoped for, really. And we just got to make sure he can see all this stuff through. Well, hopefully through your podcast and through your show, you're able to um, you know, raise up a new generation of young nationalist New Zealanders um, who are you know, capable and willing to go into politics and, uh, you know, join the New Zealand First Party and really take it to the next level um, so that each generation you can make more progress. Well, that's what we've noticed over here. Um, so we had a movement uh, last year, or it got, was very popular last year. It's still going. 
uh, since the stop co-governance movement. And we noticed with the demographics in that uh, a lot of, um, you know, the youngest you'd say in the room would might be in his 40s kind of thing. It's a lot of uh, right-wing boomers over here, and there's a, a big gap, I think. You know, no one's really pushing for, you know, young millennials and Generation Z over here. So we kind of thought uh, we could give it a go, really. And, I mean, they do have, like, you know, Young National Party and you know, Young Greens and Young Labour and all that. But, yeah, we still find that all these parties, they, there's a few things missing that none of them are really pushing for, especially with our big party, uh, the National Party. Um, you know, they're pretty soft on immigration. It's basically a uni party with uh, them and Labour. Um, you know, one so more it's cheaper. The same, um, yeah. Is the same sort of Go replacement happening uh, in New Zealand as is happening in Australia and the rest of the West in terms of, you know, Anglo-Celtic, European, white New Zealanders? Are they on the decline uh, with the massive immigration rates that you guys are having? Uh, it's one of the worst in the West. Uh, we outdid you guys. Uh, you had, as far as I know, 2.4% growth. In your population by immigration last year, we had two point eight percent. It's will your country uh, be able to sustain that level? As in the, the uh, we haven't been able to sustain it. No, it's been ever since twenty sixteen under uh, the national government. Then under John Key, there was a huge influx of migrants. Slowed down during COVID, and it's ramped up even worse now. Um, so we'll be dis we discussed it on last week's uh, podcast. It should be uploaded at uh, at some point when we sort all these technical issues out. Um, and next week we're gonna yeah we're gonna talk about migrant crime and uh, on the next episode to kind of keep the same topic going. Um, well, that that's another big aspect that we've also been talking about a little bit with the recent stabbings in Queensland is that um, you have the population change and then it, it's only heightened because the really disfavorable like you know disappealing or sorry unappealing behavior of a lot of these new migrant populations with their uh you know crime rate but even in terms of you know you look you walk the streets of high migrant areas or uh, sort of you know whether it be arabic or islander or any of these things you walk the streets and there's a lot more rubbish there's a lot more graffiti um it, it just you know the it seems a bit more derelict and so it really pushes out the population and uh, it only furthers things. There's less of a community. Uh, people aren't living where their grandparents grew up. And so there's a disconnect as well in that regard. But I'm sure it's the same yep. for you guys. Oh, yeah, like if you, it doesn't matter where someone comes from. If they've got a lower standard of living, you know, and then they come to another country, they don't magically, uh, you know, start acting better. That takes time if they do it at all. Um, but yeah, that's the it's a big problem over here. Not so much. I mean, you do get a lot of unskilled workers over here, which has been the big problem where we used to have, you know, we'd bring in tens of thousands of people a year, but they were usually highly educated or, you know, skills we need. When you're bringing in a quarter of a million, you know, that's not all skilled labor. It's, um, been pretty bad. They, I was reading an article and I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but they were bringing in thousands of foreign uh, nurses over the past 12 months. Majority of them are from India. Um, at the same time, you know, Which, our uh, medical no, system... as we'd all agree, would love to go to a hospital in India if we were ever injured. You know, seriously, I'd love to get surgery in India. I'm sure all of the equipment is really well sanitized. And it, it's really clean conditions, you know, all the bed sheets also, are washed thoroughly yeah. and the food, also, I'm sure it tastes delicious. On an Indian train over a bridge that collapses because the engineers don't know what they're doing. <laughs> That's also something I look forward to. In well, this look, th those are skilled migrants, okay? So exactly. we're, bringing in, we're bringing them all we over here. Them. So you'll be able to experience that at home. You won't even have to travel to India. Yeah. 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 I mean, one silver lining is, uh, you know, countries like India, do actually have a brain drain where all their best do leave to come to countries like this. But obviously, you know, we'd rather have it. Uh, we were educating these nurses in New Zealand five years ago, so we don't need to import them. But uh, it's another thing we really want to push on. But the economy over here is just, um, it's not good. Uh, 
I think there's money to, uh, we, you know, we, there's tens of thousands of nurses and doctors that uh, had needed to be trained. Started training 10 years ago and, you know, we're still trying to catch up. So the solution is to import tens of thousands of people instead of fixing the real issue. Yeah, of course, these new people that they're bringing in will never get sick and add load to the hospital system. You know, they're, they're definitely not going to ever ha- need any of the services that they're brought here to improve or build themselves. For example, houses, they just live under bridges, I suppose, and in open meadows or something like that. They, they don't need to live in houses. So I discussed that on my la- uh, last week's podcast. And, you know, the government will point to all these issues, how... The hospitals are overrun, uh, you know, there's not enough housing and it's too expensive, there's too much traffic, you know, public transport can't keep up. They never mention that, you know, the big issue is, uh, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people that were brought into a country that can't handle them. And at least, you know, a solution would be to put a, you know, a fixed cap you know, ten or twenty thousand, which is about ten percent of what we're actually bringing in. But we're t- what we're going to try do, I think, is push for just politicians to be mentioning the word net zero migration. We need to seriously cut down on the numbers of immigrants coming into the country, and also incentivizing people to not leave. You know, I'm assuming you guys are well aware of how many New Zealanders are living in Australia right now. I don't really blame them. They're like the Irish. There are more of you outside of the country than there are within it. <laughs> Feels like that. And they're all on welfare in Australia, of course. Yeah, that's, that is the plan, though. We're like a fifth hey, column. Matthew, you should be grateful. Who is going to staff our KFCs, okay? Think about that for one moment, please. But who eats the KFC? It's not yeah, Australian. It's, in, it's infinite GDP. Infinite GDP hack. Exactly. Just keep, import the whole world and we'll have the GDP of the world. It's the same with Indians. Who creates all the mess? And then who cleans all the mess, okay? Who is employed as the cleaners at every major company? All right? So, you know, you, you can make all these jokes, but at the end of the day, we're going to have infinite GDP, okay? And we're all going to have zero dollars in our pocket and we're going to live, you know, in a tent. But our GDP is going to be so high and every year it's going to go up by an infinite amount, all right? Anyway, with that being said, <laughs> we've come to the end of the episode. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, I don't know if we're going to be trying a live episode again in the future. Um, we didn't get to hear from Flynn Holman, maybe if he wants to jump in and say yeah. something before we end. Um, yeah, but Flynn. my phone is on 1%, so uh, make it quick, Flynn. Tease the new article, Flynn. Tease what we've been cooking up. Yeah, we're looking at some economic impacts of immigration on housing coming up in the next couple of weeks. So look out for that. Let's go. Very, very big stuff coming. Very big. Keep your eyes tuned. Subscribe to nationalobserver.co. The nationalobserver.co. Yep. Follow the nationalobserver.co. Follow the nationalobserver.co now. You have to do it. Follow now. Put, put your email in. I want to send John you. John will hunt you down. You will see. You will. Your eyes will drip out of your uh, your sockets if you see John. You do not want to see him. He will hunt you down if you do not subscribe. I will crack all the mirrors in your house. I will look at them. They will shatter. <laughs> he will kill right. your little sister from, from sheer fright of looking at. No, him. that is a joke. <laughs> we will not be killing anyone. <laughs> <laughs> we will be killing, killing anyone. Peacefully, in a non-violent way. <laughs> Dogs first, little sisters, and then grandmas, all right? Subscribe so that doesn't happen in to that you. Order. In that order. <laughs> anyway, all right. So that's been a great episode. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get our guest on, our big guest, but he'll come on at a future date. Um, it, it hasn't been cancelled. It just didn't work out for this week. Um, so I hope everyone enjoyed this call-in episode. And like Matthew said, you have to go follow us on everything. And uh, have a great rest of your week. See you.